So as of today, I think the choice between DAO and equity is how bullish you are in the project. So if you're thinking that companies launching its first or second project, there's still a highly likelihood that it's not gonna be hugely successful. And you wanna bet on the entire life cycle of the company, then right now maybe equity is still a better tool. If you're really bullish on the project, but you're not as bullish on the company, then maybe the DAO is a better way to go. Welcome to Analyze Asia, the premier weekly podcast that dissects the pulse of business, technology, and media in Asia. I'm Bernard Leung, and we have witnessed the major evolution of venture capital in Taiwan and Southeast Asia with key exits in the past few years. And the increasing focus on Web3, or what we used to know them as blockchain and cryptocurrencies. With me today is Jamie Lin, chairman and partner of AppWorks, an accelerator and venture capital firm in Taiwan with an investment focus in Southeast Asia and Web3. Jamie, welcome to the podcast. Hey, Bernard, and all the listeners of Analyze Asia. It's my pleasure to be here with you. And of course, this is the first time you're on the show, and we always want to dive into origin stories. How did you start your career? When I was a, still a junior in college, the web1.com boom hit, and we decided to launch an e-commerce website. And from there, we raised the venture capital, and then dot-com crashed. We pivoted the company into a text mining company. These days, they're called AI. And now the company is a public company in Taiwan. So my first startup was successful. And ever since, I've been an entrepreneur. So that's the origin of my career. <laughs> and then you eventually evolved and set up at AppWorks there, right? Or have you done any companies in between? Yeah, so 2006, during the height of Web 2.0, I co-founded a travel social network in New York with a couple of uh, MBA friends. And 2009, then I moved back to Taiwan to start AppWords. So yes, uh, in between, I started a Web 2.0 company. So And now now AppWords is uh, helping a lot of Web 3.0 companies. So I uh, lived through three versions of the web. <laughs> yes, and so you are both a Web 1 and Web 2 OG and now going maybe to becoming a Web 3 OG at some point. <laughs> at some so point, yeah. From your career journey, what are the key lessons you can share with my audience? I've been looking back at my career, right? So I think one of the first things that I did right was I started early. So I co-founded my first company when I was 21, while many of my classmates were still studying. And they really didn't enter the society three to five years after I did. So I got uh, three to five years more learnings than many of them did. So I was ahead of the game. So that's one. And then number two, I think uh, one year spent in startup land is probably uh, five years star spent in uh, corporate land. And one year spent in uh, Web3 land is probably five years spent in uh, traditional startup land. So if you spend one year in Web3, the amount of learning is probably 10, 20 years worth of learning you would pick up when you're in a corporate. So if you start early and you start in the startup world or even the Web3 startup world, it would guarantee that you learn a lot more than your peers. So by the time when you're 30, 30 35, you'll realize that you're much more mature than your peers at their age. So I would ask this question before we dive into the main subjects of the day. Given that you are a venture capitalist, what is a typical day like for you? <laughs> well, I'm not a stereotypical uh, venture capitalist. I also manage the 
second largest telco in Taiwan at the same time. But at any rate, my days are filled with meetings. So I, I like to think that I work in meetings and it's usually filled with 10 to 15 meetings with uh, many of the business units or startups that I am managing or I am an investor of. And I usually listen to how they're doing and what their uh, plans and questions are and give them advices. That's basically what I do. It's probably a very exciting because you talk to both the startups and then you're trying to find out what they're doing and what is exciting them at the same time, which comes to the main subject of the day. We're going to talk about AppWorks first and then talk about into investing in Web3 as such. So uh, just a quick intro. AppWorks is both an accelerator and a venture capital firm in Taiwan and Southeast Asia. Started in 2009, the fund currently has a total of US 212 million assets under management with three funds to date. I think the recent fund three was US 150 million. So maybe the first question I want to ask, and I think we alluded to it earlier, what is the inspiration behind AppWorks? And what is the original story from how it evolves from the start? to now its present state? So 2008, I was in New York and I saw Android and iPhone being launched. And I realized that those two devices are gonna unlock the full potential of Web 1.0. So Web 1.0 was sort of locked on the desktop by your laptop and uh, desktop machines. And that's why people cannot have access to internet all day long, every day. And with uh, Android and iPhone, I realized that now that people can get online all the time, it's gonna make uh, internet companies much more powerful. And I was looking at how uh, Web 2.0 was doing in this side of the Pacific and realized that not a lot was happening. <laughs> and I sort of didn't want my home country, Taiwan, and also sort of the community around us to be lagging behind, right? Because fast forward today, right? We're all using a lot of the Web 2.0 platforms invented by the US company. So it's essentially a sort of neo-digital colonialism by the West, and it's not healthy, right? So I sort of wanted to cultivate a new generation of Web 2.0 and later Web 3.0 founders so that we can have a lot of uh, products and services that are owned by ourselves and we can have more control of our own destinies. So I decided that I wanted to move back to Taiwan and subsequently sort of the, the whole region to basically bring up a whole generation of founders. So And, and then during my time in the U.S., I also saw the rise of uh, Y Combinator, right? So Y Combinator was really launched around 2005 timeframe. And so I realized that, hey, an accelerator is really a very useful platform for founders because it's very hard for founders. Number one, when you're a founder and the, the people around you are all employees, they don't get you. They don't know what you're going through. And it's very hard to remain determined if you're always hanging out with employees, uh, friends, and they're always asking, why are you doing this risky thing? Why don't you go back to having sort of a job, right? And so founders are like uh, 
I like to use the X-Men uh, framework to describe it. So founders are, are, are like mutants. And so if you start an X school and put all the mutants together and they can help each other and everybody can become a better founder, right? That's why I decided to uh, start AppWorks so that I can empower the next generation founders during uh, the beginning of Web2. And so, so that's the inspiration and beginning of AppWorks. And then subsequently, how do you evolve it into doing the venture capital fund? Is it just uh, together or maybe it's just an evolution of where you started from the accelerator side of the business? So the first company I did was an internet company, right? So I always believe in providing a, a great service for free, but only take a small percentage of, of the value you build as monetization, right? So if you look at Google, right? No one can live without Google. It's servicing billions and billions of people around the world, but they're not charging us. And they're, they're not even monetized even 10% of their traffic, right? So if you use Google every day, probably less than one out of 10 times will use the ads. And more often than that, you don't click on the ads. So for most users, Google is such a great service, but it's, it's free. They're not monetizing you, but they're only monetizing the top three, 5% of the traffic. And the revenue they generate from that is more than enough to power this great uh, service to the world, right? So I'm always a firm believer of that model. When I created AppWords, I realized that founders are poor and you can't charge them fees for Accelerator, right? And on top of that, charging them equity is also weird because how are you going to value an early stage startup without any real traction? You don't want to own a bunch of stocks in a lot of early stage companies. Uh, I realized I want to provide the Accelerator service for free because before I went to my MBA, I interned at my uh, VC for a while and realized that for founders, we always thought that venture capitalists are always sitting there waiting for founders to pitch them. But if you get to know them, you realize that uh, they're always having trouble sourcing deals. For a venture capital firm to be successful, sourcing deals is key, right? So I realized that if you build a really successful accelerator, you can essentially generate a great deal flow. And from there, if you can monetize five to 10% of your accelerator startups through managing a VC fund, you can probably build a, a great business model while keeping the accelerator free for the rest 90, 95% of the startups. So essentially that's the, the beginning framework when I thought about AppWords. And later on, I really proved that that model can work. So coming to today, what is the vision and mission of AppWorks? So today AppWorks is huge, right? So we have 435 active startups, all of them together pulling in around 14 billion a year and providing 20,000 jobs to the region. So it's already huge. And I think the vision is for AppWorks to grow another at least 10 times in the next five to 10 years. Meaning that I'd like to see our startups growing to almost a thousand, doing maybe a hundred billion or even 200 billion a year and providing hundreds of thousands of jobs to the region. Because my inspiration of starting AppWords is to empower founders in this region so that we can own our destiny. We can't own our destination if our platforms don't grow to a certain size. And that is competitive to the West, Western companies. So I think that in the next five to 10 years, I like to continue, keep working hard and make sure that our ecosystem continue to grow. <laughs>
I want to dive a little bit deeper in terms of thinking about the areas of investment and how the VC fund and accelerator work. Maybe help me understand what are the areas of investments that AppWorks focus on and what are the ticket sizes for the investments you place in companies? Because I understand the company is actually doing a wide range of investments from Series A to C. Yeah, it it would feel really weird from the outside if you see AppWorks' betting on all kinds of industries or verticals and all kinds of stages. But to us, the, the reason is actually very simple. We're all about founders. We're all about backing a founder when he's at a place where uh, money can really help him accelerate his company's growth. So that is why we're almost sector agnostic and stage agnostic. Yes, we sort of say that we have this theme that is called uh, the ABS, so AI, blockchain, and Southeast Asia. But that is a huge range, right? And then also, yes, we're writing checks as small as 200,000 US dollars and as big as 15 million US dollars. They're mostly in C to Series C stages, but sometimes we join uh, Series F or G deals. As long as we like the founder, we think he's at the right place at the right time. So from the outside, you you feel that we're everywhere. (laughs) But for us, it's simple because when we see a great founder, we just cannot help wanting to help support him (laughs) or her. I want to double click into the investment thesis side. You talk about you go into ABS, basically, for the framework. Are there any specific investment theses for AppWorks under the ABS framework? And then maybe what are the verticals that you are looking into in these areas of investments? So like I said, our thesis is on the founder, right? So all of these spaces, they evolve so quickly. And a startup can have a strong product market fit today. But when the market is shifting so dynamically, your product market fit can erode tomorrow. And who's going to make sure that you have stronger and stronger product market fit? It's it's the founder, right? So our thesis is really on the founder. So if you look at our investment memo, the vast majority of the content is talking about the founder, his story, his past. Why is he doing this? Uh, what have he learned from all the things that he did, right? So, so that is really our thesis. So we have this 3H framework on the founder. So we think that a strong founder is super determined because it takes five to 10 years for a startup to get to a place where it can be called successful. And it's five to 10 years, really hard life. Why would you want to put up with it? It's because you have some special reason that you really have to do it, right? So that's that's your heart. That's where your determination comes from. Uh, a founder has to be uh, fast learning and strategic thinking. So you have to have good head. And then also, finally, a founder has to be able to execute or build a team around him that has good execution. So your hand has to be good as well. And then on top of that, everybody's going to have to start somewhere, right? Not everybody start as a great founder. So we want to be able to identify an emerging founder by looking at the delta of his three H's. And so we can know which founders can be supported early on. Really, our thesis is around the founder, uh, his three H's and his delta. And we typically like to track a founder early on, especially for the founders that have gone through our accelerator. So we typically would build up data points 
to track their uh, evolution and their delta. And so that we know before a lot of investors realize a founder is in the process of becoming a great founder. I'm quite curious because I live in Southeast Asia. Why did the fund decided to expand from Taiwan into Southeast Asia? And uh, does the fund currently have an office in Southeast Asia? When I started, I, I knew that targeting Taiwan alone was not enough, right? Taiwan, after all, is a relatively smaller market. It's, it's around 1% of the world's GDP, so it's, it's not big enough. But, but I got to start somewhere. So I started in Taiwan 2009, knowing that at some point, I'd like to expand my focus to the entire region. So by 2014, when we raised our 50 million fund to we realized that we're at the point where we're ready to get to the next phase. So 2014, 2015 was the time when we really started looking at Southeast Asia as a whole as our home market. No, we don't, we don't currently have any offices around the region. We're looking to set up some, but really the, the past two years has been tough because of the pandemic. But on the flip side, it also made a lot of founders willing to take investments from VCs that they've only met on Zoom. And it also make it okay for many of our LPs that we've only met our founders on Zoom and didn't have a chance to do a physical due diligence. So I, that, so I think uh, our plan has been sort of hurt and helped by COVID. So I'm pretty curious then, how does the AppWorks Accelerator work? How would a founder be selected to go into the accelerator and then will the VC fund actually follow up from there? It's actually simple, right? So you go to our website, fill out uh, an application. We very carefully put together an application because we want the application filling process as educational as possible. So we carefully ask a lot of why questions to help the founders get to know themselves and also help them tell us about themselves. Uh, so once you fill that out, most of the team members will read it and score it. If we feel that we'd like to meet you, then we're going to invite you in for an interview, either physically or through Zoom. And it's going to be 20, 25 minute interview. And after that, we'll make a decision. And yeah, so it's as simple as that. We don't charge anything. It's completely free. And from there, you would be accelerated for almost half a year, going through a lot of the more intense programs that we built for the accelerators. And then once you graduate, you don't just leave us, you're integrated into our alumni network. And we continue to serve you as sort of our, our alumni founder. And you, you would enjoy our service for the rest of your life for free. So once you're uh, an AppWorks founder, you're forever an AppWorks founder. <laughs> And you have a pretty interesting portfolio of companies across Taiwan and Southeast Asia. Can you talk about some of these companies that's under your portfolio? Sure. So the one that I would want to highlight would be Shopback, right? So Shopback is a Singaporean startup. They're uh, doing really well. They're a cashback shopping platform. They're in six, seven markets across the region. In, in the beginning, they started in Singapore. And then after they're established, in Singapore and saw strong product market fit, they started expanding to other Southeast Asian markets, markets like Thailand. And we met them in 2015. And they weren't thinking about Taiwan because they thought, it's like for, for a long time, I think Taiwan was not on a map for a lot of uh, Southeast Asian founders, right? 
And so we met them and we realized that they can benefit a lot from tapping into the Taiwan market because e-commerce penetration in Taiwan. So, so they're doing cashback shopping and the cashback shopping is essentially highly reliant on a vibrant e-commerce ecosystem, right? So back then, Taiwan's e-commerce penetration is a few percentage points ahead of many of the Southeast Asian markets. And so the ecosystem was a little bit more mature. So we advised them that they should uh, join the AppWorks Accelerator and tap into our network to work with many of the e-commerce platforms in Taiwan. And we had a feeling that the learnings that they pick up here can then be reapplied to the rest of the region. And so they, I think Henry and Joao, the co-founders, sort of joined us half-heartedly. They did because they were, of course, talking about all the good things about it, but they, I think they had to find out themselves. So they, they joined our program and... Actually, very soon they realized that, wow, the ecosystem in e-commerce ecosystem in Taiwan was really mature. And they, in a span of few months, they were already able to connect and start working with most of the big guys here. And they learned a lot here and reapplied a lot of learnings in the, the rest of the region. And that really accelerated their growth. And on top of that, they realized that there's a huge supply of relatively economic developer talent here in Taiwan. So in the end, they not only built a huge business here in Taiwan, they also built the R&D team here in Taiwan that is supporting the growth for them in the whole region. So I think that story really uh, tells you how seeing Taiwan and Southeast Asia as a whole region can be beneficial for a lot of founders. And AppWorks is really keen on helping many of the founders from one country to become regional in this market. That's a very interesting example. So I'm pretty curious in terms of thinking about the companies you have funded, what are the red flags that will actually deter you from investing in companies? We're a founder-focused investor, right? So if a founder is has bad integrity, put his own interest in front of the company or in front of the, the employees or investors. That's probably the biggest red flag. Again, so we look across the whole three H's, right? So if a founder is really determined, but he's not learning fast or he's, he has really low execution, it is not a red flag per se, but we would avoid those type of founders. And then on top of that, of course, we want, we want founders to have high delta, right? So if we feel that a founder is standing still, is not evolving quickly and learning quickly. That's also not a founder we prefer to back. So things like that. Yeah. So I want to sort of put you into thinking about the future now. What does great look like for AppWorks for the next five years? Great. Well, so like I said, if we will be able to grow our ecosystem to 100 billion, 200 billion, and more importantly, provide hundreds of thousands of jobs to the region, especially the jobs created. That's the number that I hold really dear to my heart. Uh, yeah, so if we can, in the end, provide jobs at that scale, I think I would be really happy. I, I would think that I made, I've made a huge impact to the region. I want to come back to the topic about thinking about investing in Web3 or I think under your framework is the blockchain side of it. I think to baseline this part of the conversation, I want to first ask, 
what do you define Web3 given their cryptocurrencies, blockchain technologies, decentralized finance, or what we call DeFi, and non-fungible tokens or NFTs, we call it? I really define uh, Web3 as six fundamental changes to the tech space and subsequently the world. So number one, I think the world is moving from fiat currency to cryptocurrency. And cryptocurrency is a, a digital native currency. So it's going to greatly unlock transactions and store of value in a digital world. I think uh, the world is moving from data wall gardens to what I call the data park, right? So right now we have moved most of our data to the cloud. But these data are governed by each platform's policies. So users don't really own these data. Uh, it's the platforms that are co-owning the data with them. But with blockchain, users can finally use the cloud as the same way they use their laptops. So you can put all of your data in the, in the blockchain and you can bring it to any application, any way of, or form you like. So users finally can own their data on the web. So that's what I call a park. Number three, I think finance, traditional finance will be replaced by DeFi. So 10, 20 years from now, uh, a lot of people will be doing their financial activities and investing activities through DeFi. Number four, I think traditional certificates are getting replaced by NFTs. Number five, I think uh, equity is going to be replaced by DAOs. And then number five, I think Wall Street is going to be replaced by DEX. So I think these six fundamental paradigm shifts really define Web3. I think it was interesting that you mentioned the concept of DAOs, or actually I have to name it decentralized autonomous organizations where even the investors from can form decentralized funds. There are some pretty interesting examples like Friends with Benefits DAO. And I think there is also a protocol called Syndicate do you think that these new models can actually uproot the current VC model in Web2, which may be more ideal for a Web3 world? I think it will completely replace the current model. Really, equity was invented because human beings need the tool to record and recognize partial ownerships, right? And before DAO, we don't have a third party that can guarantee that record is neutral and 100% correct. So we really created this limited uh, liability companies with governments because government can stand there to be the third party to help different shareholders make sure the equity split records are intact. But not with blockchain. Uh, blockchain is much better versus one uh, single government in terms of recording things like this, right? So essentially DAO is human beings moving equity ownership record from governments to the blockchain. So much like what is happening to currency, which is going through a very similar paradigm shift, I think equity ownership is for sure going to be replaced by something that is recorded in the blockchain. And that, that thing is right now called DAO. So yes, DAO is for sure gonna replace company ownership recording and also venture investments in the next 10, 20 years. I'm pretty curious, just now you talk about the six features that you think about how do you define Web3. 
what are the most interesting trends in Web3 which will shape your investment thesis in 2022 and beyond? I think over the past 12, 18 months, we observe the cryptocurrency space growing in uh, uh, five to 10 folds in terms of value. And because of that, that created a huge space for a lot of the wouldn't be viable specialized services to exist. So back then, two years ago, the space was too small for a lot of these specialized services to exist. But today, the door just got opened because the industry is big enough and you can specialize in things like analytics or data portability or cross-chain services or staking as service, things like this, right? So I, th I think in 2022, we're going to see a lot of these second tier, third tier services getting developed and getting to scale, right? That's number one. Number two, I think we're still in sort of not even the first inning, but maybe the first pitch of NFT. I think, like I said, NFT is going to revolutionize how people record ownership of things. In 2022, I think we're going to see NFT space growing by another five to tenfold. 2022, I think DEXs are also gonna grow much faster than 2021. On top of that, I think that 2022 DeFi, so uh, a lot of the more sophisticated investment or uh, speculation, speculative tools will be developed on DeFi. So those are the things uh, we're bullish about in 2022. That's a pretty interesting point of view thinking about the Web3 space. I have actually done a couple of Web3 investments as an angel investor. So when I think about there are different models to fund a Web3 entity, I've actually been through all three configurations. The first is the equity model with the Web3 entity still being a company. The second is the token plus equity model with the company able to have a token generation event or what they call, used to call ICO and now call TGE, or you want to go full token model. I think because it's good that we, I have a VC on the show and it's, it's great to actually ask you, how do you look at these three different ways of investing in a Web3 company? So I think we're really in the process of moving from equity to token or DAO, right? So that's why at the same time, you're seeing all three models coexist. But I, th I think the future is really in the pure DAO or pure token model. But I think the thing with tokens or DAOs is, at least as of now, most smart contracts, once published, are not editable, right? So if, but it's not the case for a company's equity bylaws. So if a startup launches a DAO project, once it's launched, it's pretty fixated. So when you're betting on, a DAO, you're essentially today mostly betting on a project, but you're betting on equity, you're betting on all the future products a company can create. So as of today, I think the choice between DAO and equity is how bullish you are in the project. So if you're thinking that company's launching its first or second project, there's still a highly likelihood that it's not going to be hugely successful and you want to bet on the entire life cycle of the company, then right now maybe equity is still a better tool. If you're really bullish on the project, but you're not as bullish on the company, then maybe the DAO is a better way to go. But I think that that will soon change because I think DAO and tokens will pretty soon 
become much more flexible, much like how equity is. And soon you're going to be able to bet on the DAO to bet on the entire life cycle of a startup. This is a very interesting conversation. You have a very interesting insight in how you're thinking about both the DAO and the equity models. I want to actually even probe a little bit deeper. And I think that even the exits are now becoming very interesting for VC in investing for a Web3 company. So if a company actually goes into what I call a token generation event, there actually needs to be a strategy to manage the VC firm's treasury. Because then the question is, how do you get these tokens to the LPs who invested back in you, right? So maybe this also leads to, I think, the next generation of VC funds will probably become something like a combination of hedge fund and VC fund structure. You already see that in the Web3 world where you can see some of these crypto hedge funds are becoming VCs as well. What are your thoughts on that? So I think LPs really hired us to seed an early growth stage investments. And <laughs> so back in 1999, when I, when I first started, dot-com companies could have gone IPO within 6 to 12 months. And their stock prices can appreciate another 10, 20, 30-fold after IPO. So really, VCs weren't selling or distributing the stocks immediately, but they would help the LPs sort of continue to manage it and enjoy the early growth cycle. And then later on, because of the crash, Wall Street turned really cold to tech companies. So for a long time, there weren't really uh, tech IPOs, right? So Facebook famously took eight years before it went IPO, right? And when it went IPO, it was already tens of billions of dollar companies. So, so their early growth and mid-growth was really done as a private company. And, and many VC investors actually exited their position in Facebook years before the IPO. And then fast forward today, I think with DAO and TGE, we're back to a similar phase with the dot-com boom again. So if you look at that evolution, you realize that the public offering event is not really the end of the VC investment cycle, right? It's just part of the milestone. Sometimes to help your LPs enjoy the full cycle of early growth, sometimes you'll need to continue to manage the asset long after the initial public offering. Sometimes actually the initial public offering is not happening anytime soon and you'll, you'll need to help your LPs exit the position years before that, right? So, so I, I think for VCs, it's really important that you see where the early growth is happening and where it's trending toward the end and how you're going to exit your position when it's doing that. And it's less important in the middle if there is a IPO event or not. So that, that's the way I look at it. So essentially, our LPs really hire us to help them capture this early growth in any shape or form we can. And then that comes to my last question. What are the most interesting problems that you believe Web3 will eventually solve and changes where the current internet industry will evolve towards? So like I said, I think the biggest problem with Web 2.0 is we were successful in helping users move most of the data to the cloud. But unfortunately, the data is now locked in wall gardens. There's limited portability and users can really make use of their data everywhere they go. So I think that's gonna be fixed with Web3. So in 10, 20 years, users are gonna feel that they completely own their data and they can 
bring their data to any new uh, websites or services, and they can immediately plug in their data, enjoy personalized products and services, right? So I, I think that's number one. Number two, I think because Web 1.0 and 2.0 was decentralized information exchange built on top of digitalized, centralized currencies, file currencies, right? So you can go to any website in the world, but it's really hard for you to buy things on any website in the world, right? So I was living in the US and I wanted to buy something from Taiwan, but most of my US credit cards were declined by Taiwanese websites because the credit rating system in the world are still divided by countries and they're not integrated. So it's very hard for Taiwanese merchants to identify if my credit card is real or not. But with cryptocurrency, it's no longer the case, right? I can use my crypto wallet and buy anything on any website as long as they accept crypto wallets. But not the case with Visa Master, right? You can't, even if you have a Visa card, you can't go to any website and be guaranteed that your Visa card will work. I think that's going to be another big problem Web3 uh, will solve for Web2. So in closing, I just wanted to find out how can my audience find you? They can find me on Twitter at Mr. Jamie Lin. Also on uh, Facebook, Mr. Jamie. My blog, Mr. Jamie. Or LinkedIn, I'm Jamie Lin. And I'm a pretty proliferate publisher. So uh, uh, you can find a lot of writings from me. And I, hopefully many of these writings are helpful to you, especially when you're a founder. And you can also find me on uh, our AppWords website or our Twitter handle. Yeah, hopefully uh, I'll get to uh, meet many of you after this podcast. And you can definitely Google us on Analyze Asia. You can reach us on any podcast platform or tweet to us at Analyze Asia, A-N-A-L-Y-S-E Asia. If you go to iTunes, please help us to give us a five-star rating because it helps us to be discovered. And uh, many thanks for coming on the show. And I look forward to speak to you in the future again. Thanks for having me. It was fun.